1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 69 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards Podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg, and on this episode, I am joined by Julian Fellows the creator, sole writer, and executive producer of the acclaimed drama series Downton Abbey, which came to an end this year after six remarkable seasons. The 66-year-old Brit, who was nominated for eight Emmys during the show's run and won two, is tremendously fascinated with the subject of class and the interactions and tensions between classes. It's been a running thread through his writing ever since 2000, when he began writing what would become his first produced screenplay for the 2001 Robert Altman film Gosford Park which ultimately brought him the best original screenplay Oscar. And it's remained a major theme in his work even since Downton came to an end. In Dr. Thorne, a four-part miniseries that debuted on Amazon Prime in May, in Belgravia, a serialized novel that he's released through an app, and in The Gilded Age, the next drama series on which he's set his sights, which he's doing for NBC. Not that class is the only thing he understands how to do, he's also written, if you can believe it, the books for the Broadway musical adaptations of Mary Poppins and School of Rock, the latter of which earned him a Tony nomination this year. Over the course of our conversation, Fellows opens up about the deeply personal roots of his interest in class, about how he wound up spending decades of his life prior to Gosford Park as a character actor on both sides of the Atlantic. You might have caught him in, for instance, the 1997 Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies and he talks about how and why he eventually began transitioning away from acting and towards writing, which has become the entire focus of his life in recent years. He explains how, on Downton, without the aid of a writer's room, he managed to juggle so many different characters and storylines, how he was already familiar, personally, with the sorts of lives that people lived during the period of 1912 through 1925 in which the show was set, and how audience reactions to major events in the characters' lives and to the series finale impacted him. Most importantly to some of you, he talks about why he hopes we haven't seen the last of the Crawleys yet and how they might reappear in the future. So, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Lord Fellows, thank you so much for coming in and doing this. And uh, to begin with, we always ask our guests where they were born and raised and what their parents did for a living just out of curiosity
2: um i was in fact born in cairo the the capital of egypt uh, because my father then was a diplomat and he was second secretary or something i forget now in the embassy and um my parents lived out there uh, for a couple of years but um i came back to england as a baby so i don't really have any memory of Cairo at all but, but it was quite interesting because much later on uh, when I was about 11 I'd always traveled on my mother's passport and in those days you just wrote in your children's names you know it was there's all the security <laughs> stuff there was none that. and um, and then when I was 11 they were in Nigeria because my father was by then working for Shell and he was head of Shell in Nigeria and um, I had to travel on a separate passport and when they applied for one they said well no, this, this boy was born in Cairo, and uh, you were born to my father. You were born in Canada, and your father was born in Australia. All true, because right. it was an army family. Uh, I'm afraid he's Egyptian. You better get him an Egyptian passport. <laughs> and um, I remember I was in the drawing. My father came back. My mother said, well. And my father said, well, I'll tell you what I've done. I bought the boy a fez. And he put it on his head. But um, now I can't remember how it was fixed. I right. suppose if some string was pulled right. and I was given a British passport. But it was a slight drama at the time. It's terrific. Well, class and
0: the interactions and tensions between classes have been a running thread through a lot of your work. And I was fascinated to learn that that really dates back to the very early in your life in the sense that your parents, there was some uh, perhaps discrepancy in their backgrounds that interested you. And then also I read about a time, I think you were 17, where you literally uh, were at the brink of the upstairs downstairs divide accidentally. And so can you just talk about those things and how this became one of your great interests?
2: Um, I think in a sense, it, 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 it's kind of uh, with the wisdom of hindsight people kept asking me, why was I interested in class? Because by the time I was a young man, certainly it was fashionable to pretend it didn't exist anymore. And there was no such thing. Everyone had forgotten about all that. Complete nonsense, of course. Right. I mean, It's alive and well in 2016. But nevertheless, people would say these things because they wanted you to think that's what they thought. Um, and so you do start trying to slightly analyze why you, you are, curious about it Uh, and i think uh, as you said it came originally because my parents backgrounds didn't really match my father came from a uh, sort of gentry family whatever you call that i mean my grandfather was a younger son nobody had any money i mean there was nothing any grand going on but nevertheless our births were recorded in burks and all this sort of thing that was not my mother's background. My, mother, um, my mother's father was a civil servant, quite a successful one in the postmaster general's department. But, you know, they lived a sort of suburban, middle class life. And um, she was a great beauty and much painted. People would do her portrait and all that. She was Miss Speed at mm. London University. And was always being mistaken for an actress called Louise Brooks. I don't oh, know sure, you yeah, remember, with, the, with, with the bangs, bangs yeah. hair, and all that. And my father's family, I now realize, although as a child you glimpse these things through a glass darkly, but um, they thought she'd caught him. And uh, my great-aunt's plan, because they didn't approve my grandmother either, actually, not that she was... Uh, not w- well-born she was quite well-born but she was mad and a sort of <laughs> flapper and th- they thought irresponsible and my grandfather had died in the great war at 29 so they thought it was their responsibility this sort of phalanx of aunts to to save my father from his mother and to get a respectable marriage and get him on the way and what was their horror when he turned up with this girl with no background that they would recognize I mean, actually, it was perfectly respectable you know they They sort of behaved as if she'd been selling violets in Covent Garden. But, I mean, that wasn't it. Um, And you know how clever women are. I mean, she picked up the the way of doing things very quickly. Um, But nevertheless, and all my childhood, I remember my great aunt sort of slighting her and tolerating her (laughs) and never welcoming her. We would be dropped off to have tea, to have luncheon, whatever it was. Uh, And they would be very affectionate to my father if he would make an appearance, but not to my mother. And I think those things, a child looks at them and they don't quite know what they're looking at. But they know something's going Mm -hmm. on. And later, you know, rather like the children of an unhappy marriage. Mm -hmm. When they're very young, they don't quite get it. But they get something,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I would see um, my mother, who was very confident, very funny woman actually, but I would see how she was undermined by all this, and they would come and stay, and she would be nervous, and, and then, you know, I remember there was one wedding of some cousin of my father's, and she wouldn't go because she didn't feel she had anything to wear and all that. She's very unlike her in any normal right. context and i think from that i came to understand gradually when i was sort of 16 17 the damage that class can inflict on life how it is a sort of invisible weapon how it can be used to batter people And subdue them and make them feel inferior and make them feel out of place and so on I mean of course now It's it's almost laughable because the difference between someone from the lower gentry and the professional middle class is sort of nil I mean if your Child came back with with such a partner you wouldn't think anything of it but in the 30s of course the world was a different place and uh, it certainly did affect her life uh, I mean she, she dealt with it by becoming um, quite uh, anarchic and rather than society she sort of collected artists and writers and politicians and general kind of wackos, and that was, her, that was her preferred private life right. some of it very interesting I mean our neighbours in the country for instance were Roland Penrose and his wife Lee Miller you know the great um, early American photographer, the ones photographed sitting in Hitler's bath and all that They were our next-door neighbours. And so it wasn't that we didn't know interesting people. We knew tremendously interesting mm-hmm. people. But they were not my father's old people. Right. And um, when I was older, when I was about 18, 19, I was picked up by this rather curious old guy called Peter Tynard. He used to collect young men and young girls... For the London season and he would sort of in a way run it and you would be vetted you were if your name was in one of the stud books you would be invited for a drink and he would vet you and then you would be put on the list for hostesses who didn't know enough boys whatever and um, and I went into that and and I think my mother was sort of in a way slightly irritated I think she looking back she saw this sort of sticky hand coming out of the past and taking her young you know Um, but what it did mean is that I had a rather inside outside position in all this Um, I was inside in that I was on the list and I did go to the things but I had enough of my mother in me to look at these people and kind of judge them really that sounds harsh but I think I I didn't just go along with it all and and really that was the kernel of what much later became one of the main strands of my writing career really.
0: So when you go off to Cambridge uh, how did your interest in acting emerge and how did that go over with your folks because acting as we Uh, see with, I believe, Carson in Downton Abbey, was not always regarded as the most uh, proper profession to pursue for people of means.
2: Um, I acted at school to a degree. Uh, And then I went, as you say, to Cambridge, to Magdalen, Cambridge, and and I went into the Footlights and I went into the Trinity Drama Society and so on. I couldn't get into... um, the main one, I forget what it was called now, the ADS or something, and um, they wouldn't have me. But I got into the others. Um, I'm happy to say I was the only one of that year, I think, who became a professional actor, so Yabu sucks. <laughs> but um, I don't think my parents initially saw it as anything more than a student activity, you know, as if I was in the historical society or something or other. Um, It was really in my third year that I kept thinking, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And then I went to see this film um, called I'll Never Forget What's His Name, which was directed by, of all unlikely inspirations, Michael Winner. And you know how when you're young, a particular film, a particular pop song just somehow strikes something in you seems to touch you there's always a song attached to a failed love affair right, you know right, and you right. play it again and again <laughs> Boo hoo. and um, the film did that sort of thing to me and I started to think I don't have to be interested in films because I was I used to go to eight, ten films a week oh. but I thought it was my hobby and then I thought sorry, maybe it doesn't have to be my hobby maybe it could be what I'm going to do um, my parents were unusual in that they were very keen on films which most of their contemporaries of their type were not particularly I mean I don't mean they never went but uh, and also even more unusually my mad zany grandmother my father's mother who'd been a sort of flapper was crazy about right. films <laughs> and so he spent half his childhood in the dark of an auditorium you know with sort of flickering silence going and so the concept of being very interested in film was not alien to them they they got that Um, and I think they were sufficiently sort of wild that uh, there wasn't a particular career I was expected to do I mean my ancestors had on the whole been in the Navy in the Army they'd farmed you know been in the church nobody expected any of that (laughs) and because we weren't a professional family we weren't lawyers or bankers worse luck um, there wasn't any pressure. But, I mean, the main, the main issue, really, for my... My mother didn't mind. She, saw, she thought it was kind of a hoot. <laughs> I was the youngest son. My eldest brother was an accountant and all that. She thought it was a hoot. And she thought drama school would be fun, whatever came of it. And so I didn't really have any opposition from her. My father's problem was a much more practical one. He just didn't think I'd earn a living.
0: Mm-hmm. He
2: didn't... He knew that I liked to live... Reasonably well, right. he didn't see an acting career delivering this. I wasn't good looking. I mean, I was as plain as a pumpkin, <laughs> and uh, and also it was the time in Britain of the rise of the working class actor. Well, it was I, Albert I Finney add to and you, all yeah. Of that.
0: I mean, we're just to remind folks this is the kitchen sink drama. All of it was yeah. coming on Finney, Michael Caine, Terence Stamp, Richard Harris, Alan Tom Bates, Courtney. Tom Courtney Uh, Uh, That was the prevailing wind. And you, just because of your accent and your aura and whatever, you felt that 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 was a tougher sell to fit in with that group? Well,
2: it wasn't only that I felt I wouldn't fit in with that group. It was that the casting directors, the, the directors, felt I wouldn't fit in with that group. And also, there's always been a thing in our business that they're quite happy to cast an actor who who comes from a working class background as an aristocrat but they'll never do the other yeah, way round right. and that's true in America actually oh, yeah sure um so you're up against that but i mean in the end acting as a broad church and there's always a lot of different stuff going on i think if if i had to give any advice and i don't think my advice is worth taking for the most part but i mean if i did to a young actor i would say find what it is that you are. Find what you're bringing to this show that nobody else is quite bringing, or at least not a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, even if it's something that's a little bit wacky, there's gonna be some work for you. The problem is when all you're bringing is what everyone else is bringing. Right, right. Um, and, And then, if you're the young, pretty girl, the young, handsome guy, and I mean, of course, if you make it, that's the best career there is. Right. But for everyone that makes it, there's a million that don't. Now,
0: the reason that you left England briefly to go and act in America, or to pursue acting in America, was because you felt that there, you might have a better shot at getting a fair hearing in America?
2: Well, to be honest, I did think that. And history has proved me absolutely correct. <laughs> uh, America has given me my career, both as an actor and as a writer. I mean, I was up against a certain amount of, my politics were also wrong.
0: Right, because you're a conservative. I'm a
2: conservative, I always was. Right. I couldn't, I knew it was a mistake, <laughs> but I couldn't fake it, right. because I was too political. I think if you're not very political, then you can fake it to a degree, you just don't talk about it, right. you, let, you know, you let it lie down but I wasn't sensible enough to do that and at that time sort of in this too but but now people are less didactic than they were in the 70s but in the 70s in the industry if you weren't a supporter of the Labour Party you were a bad person I mean there was there was simply no middle ground and I remember a casting director at the National saying to me there was a director who wanted me for a restoration comedy and had asked for me, and she blocked my booking. And she told me, I'm not letting this happen. Horrible woman, so I won't name her. But uh, but I'm not letting this happen, because I feel your type of actor is better off on the other side of the river. In other words, not at the National, but in the West End, where trivial, you know, sort of um, populist commercial entertainment is going on. And then I walked out of that interview and I thought, I got to get out of here. You know, I mean, uh, there is a level of brick wall where it's just fruitless to keep banging your head against it. Things had gone quite well. I had been in the West End. I'd done two or three hit shows. And that was just at the end of doing um, Present Laughter with Donald Sinden. I played Roland Moore, good part. Uh, And that had all been quite successful. But... That wasn't the career I wanted. I didn't want to be a West End comedy actor falling downstairs for the rest of my life. And um, an opportunity arose to get a green card. A friend of mine in America knew I was thinking about this and she saw a job advertised where, you know, sometimes they list six things and you've got all six, right, right, right. and it was one of those. Right. And I got the job as a kind of West, End, uh, West Coast representative uh, of a PR firm. And um, I was just feeding information and doing the odd article and that kind of thing. It was pretty easy and I wasn't paid very much, but it was enough right. to get me a card. Then, funnily enough, my employer was joined Reagan's government. I can't remember why or how, but anyway, he did. But by then I had the card, so everything's right. fine. And I was in Hollywood for about two years, two and a half years. And I did a certain amount of stuff. I mean... Um, I remember i was always playing sort of mysterious foreigners you know i i I used to i remember i'd come out from under staircases saying you don't worry princess all will be well you know but um but it was fun i did a couple of movies with linda carter i had a sort of running part in a series um playing a camp um maitre d of a hotel in california and you know it was all i mean none of it was quite sarah siddon's award you know but but (laughs) It was sort of good fun. Um, But then I had a sort of learning experience because there was a film being cast at Disney and there was a subsidiary baddie to be the co baddie with an actor called Patrick Magoon, who you may remember. And this description was kind of me. And I couldn't get an interview and my agent tried and tried. They wouldn't see me. They wouldn't see me. Then I had to go back to london for something completely different i can't remember some kind of family related thing or whatever and i was while i was in london my english agent rang up and said they want to see you for a disney film of course it was the same movie right right and you know would you go along and i and i went to this interview and i was given the part and it was great and i was 10 weeks filming in east west africa in cote uh, and everything um it was a very good film, but we'll pass over that likely. <laughs> and, um, and I remember I said to the director at one point, How is it that I couldn't see you in LA? And then immediately, I know mean, sooner on terra firma in England than I have a, a, a spot with you. And he said, Oh, God. He said, I don't really remember that. But all I remember is that we decided that the only really good fam- uh, English actors in, in Los Angeles were famous. And if we wanted to cast the other parts we'd get much better actors if we went to England so I thought <laughs> i better come back, back to England right, right, right. so I did go back to England and uh, actually what Hollywood had done for me which made it a very productive period was while I was in England before drama school in British training then and probably now but certainly hundred years ago um was very theater 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 Oh, the theaters the thing the government get back on the boards you know all this and in the end you know rather like goebbels proved if you say the same thing again and again and again you kind of people get to believe it and i had got caught up in this and i was in the theater and i was in the west end i was there. and i had lost touch with the fact that I had originally gone into the industry because I was interested in film Mm -hmm. and camera, television as well, camera. And Hollywood gave that back to me. While I was there, obviously everything I did was on camera, but Mm -hmm. also I was surrounded by people working in the industry. I was sharing a house with Anthony Andrews. He was working in the industry. I had friends there. They would show me scripts. And, you know, I've been offered this by Fox. What do you think? And I would go through it and say, well, the first half works, but then the logic goes on. Right. And so, it, A, was the beginning of my script training, but also it reminded me that that's what I wanted. Right. And it didn't mean I'd never do another play, but I never again lost sight of what it was that I wanted, which was to be a factor in the film industry, to be a player. And, I mean, I'm not in the least psychic, you know I can get eight hours in a room where someone was strangled three hours earlier (laughs) but I do think that in terms of achievement it is helpful to have a very clear idea of what it is that you want Mm -hmm. and what you're going for I know that when I'm introduced to young people who want to come into the industry or whatever if they come in and they say I've done this and I've done this and I produced this film and I've written this and I've done thing and nothing thing and what I've just got to do is meet some sorry. You do everything you can to help them. Because you know, this boy, this girl are so motivated, and they've come up against a block, but it's a block you can get them over, and then they're gonna keep moving. If they say, well, I haven't really decided... I don't know if I want to act, or I, maybe I want to write, or maybe I want to present. <laughs> Nothing's ever going to happen. No, right. them. You give them a cup of tea, right. you wish
0: them well. Now, for you, the the clarifying what it was that you wanted to or ended up doing really happened, I believe, once you were back in England, and how did, how did writing enter the equation?
2: Well, what happened is I... I sort of felt my life changed actually I got back to England and I sort of potted on for a few years um, and then I got married I met the girl I was gonna marry and I got married a year and a half later mm-hmm. um, and in a way that kind of changed me I think it changed me in two ways one that my ambition became much more kind of solidified. I had a child within a year and I thought, i I got get this show on the road, you know, right. in that way. But I think also, um, I, I, I always, I smelt differently. I think I became less desperate. I was much happier mm-hmm. apart from anything else. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was happier and so I sort of seemed happier. Um, and my career did start to get going. Also, in a way, I was 40, I think my looks were better at 40 than they'd been at 25. Um, my persona worked better for middle-aged people. You know, there are all those other elements in casting. And I started to get some quite good work. And Danny Boyle cast me. So I remember as soon as I got back from my honeymoon, Danny Boyle cast me in a miniseries as a lead. It was called For the Greater Good. Mm -hmm. And it was a marvellous part. Um, I had quite an interesting thing on that, actually. I went to the interview and, you know, I came back and my agent rang said, they want you for the part, and they want you for the part of whatever it was called, Wyndham or something. And they sent the scripts over and I read the scripts and I thought there'd been a mistake because this guy was a lead, one of the leads. (laughs) And I rang my agent, I said, I don't think they want me for Wyndham, so can we find out what they do want me for before I make a decision? She rang back, she said, No, no, it's Wyndham, that's what they want you for. And I then had this moment, this Damascene realization, that the person who'd been keeping me out of leading roles was me. And I had not imagined that that was my place, and it was my place so um, I did that part and then a lot of other things followed that, was, that were interesting and I did a movie with Catherine Deneuve and I was in one of the Bond pictures and I had various other stuff going on, it was all um, quite interesting and I um, did a wonderful series actually called Aristocrats where I for once had a sort of normal emotional life which was normally <laughs> denied me on screen and then I was cast in a in a, in a series called um, Monarch of the Glen, which I was in for five years. Yeah. But during that time, um, I have thought maybe I should have some kind of plan B. Mm-hmm. And my plan B, I thought, would be uh, to take up work as a producer for television. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd done a certain amount of children's television already. I thought I knew how it worked. In those days, it was a small and separate department at the BBC it isn't now actually okay. it's all a part of the main thing but in those days it was and I thought that was an easier way in um, and we took these ideas uh, and one of them we sold but we spent all the money on the scripts that we had and they didn't really work and maybe my wife always says I'm being unjust maybe I am but <laughs> anyway I ended up rewriting them and for nothing, right. and it got made, the show did p- pretty well. So suddenly was you're a writer. A, it was the only kids show in the top 10 sales <laughs> right. and, and of the year, and so then they commissioned me to write right. a version of Little Lord Fauntleroy and, and suddenly I was a TV writer. Um, and then I did another series. I mean, the funny thing was that of course, because I'd taken my eye off my acting career, it immediately improved exponentially. <laughs> and, uh, and I was very busy as an actor during this period. But then I left uh, the BBC children. Well, I didn't leave the head of department left and the new one wanted a new team, you know, which is the way these things go. And I started to write film scripts on specs. I didn't want to only write for children for the rest of my life. <laughs> And one of those spec scripts was a version of The Eustace Diamonds by Anthony Trollope, which has not been made thus far, but anyway. Um, And I wrote it for a chap called Bob Balaban, who is an actor-producer, rather a distinguished one. And um, he was trying to set up a film with Robert Altman, uh, which would sort of be a version of the country house murder mystery but as a device to look at that way of life and they couldn't find a writer you know why I cannot tell you I've always thought it was the influence of my dead mother sort of <laughs> refusing to let anyone else right. accept the job coming to them in dreams right. but um, anyway uh, he, he Altman, thought he'd come to a dead end and then Balaban said well there is this guy right, and right. you know this is his bag <laughs> and so he suggested me and I had a sort of rather awkward uh, international telephone conversation when I was in London and, and Balaban was in New York and Bob Altman was down in Dallas I think or anyway making a film somewhere right. and um, we sort of terrible line and everything but we got to the point when I had to send across some character ideas. Um, of course I rushed out and took out of the in those days video library every Ortman picture I could find. Because you know. at this point the character ideas, the character sketches was just probably to sort of check you out. Yeah. Yeah. And I looked at every Ortman movie. Right. At, because I wanted to write a movie that he would then recognize as this is my movie. You know, this is an Altman picture.
0: Meaning millions of characters, overlapping dialogue. Of, overlapping dialogue, right.
2: overlapping arcs, right. different narratives, right. all interplatted, right. some overall, some little arcs that are just told in three or four scenes, all these different aspirations and dreams, one scene with 16 right. characters serving seven stories, <laughs> all of it. I made all these notes, right. and I wrote, first of all, characters and then I was commissioned to do a first draft Um, I mean surprisingly many of the character arcs wound up in the final movie but um, I then wrote a script uh, absolutely tailored to him and um, I got this response back this uh, original telephone call was in January 2000 and then in I think July uh, they said, would I fly over to California for, to talk to Bob for three days? And it was interesting for me because when I left California to come back uh, in, after the baby experience, um, I thought to myself, I always enjoyed California. I'm not one of those Englishmen who hates LA <laughs> and everything. I've always had a good time there, right. but I thought to myself, no, I've done my scouting the next time I fly to California, someone else is paying for the ticket. That's good, yeah. And it happened. And I got on the airplane and they paid for the ticket. It happened and it's Robert Altman. This is and a it big was deal. Robert Altman who yeah. paid my ticket. And the other thing, which was more fundamental really, was that I had never believed that this would actually come off because it just seemed too, Wild that you know this actor is suddenly asked to write a script for a world famous film director and it gets made. It was like the script of a Mickey Rooney musical, and so I never believed. I knew I had to do my best. I knew I had to try as hard as I could, but I never believed it. And Bob Altman told me on that visit that he had never believed it would really happen until he read the first draft. So we had both been humouring each other for the first chunk. And we came to a point of thinking this film might get made at precisely the same moment.
0: And what's amazing also is that the idea of what the movie would potentially be about was really his, right? But it happens to be the exact area of interest that you've
2: had for most of your life. Well, that was my great good fortune. There's always a lot of luck involved. And anyone who tells you there isn't is lying. Um... I was very fortunate that it was not only an area of real interest to me, but a very unfashionable topic. So most of the writers he approached thought it was a stupid idea (laughs) and didn't want to have anything to do with it. And so it came to me, uh, I mean, all the main writers were approached and they all turned it down, even though for most of them it was their only chance to write an Altman movie. So it was rather extraordinary.
0: They thought they were being set up to fail.
2: They thought they were being set up to fail. Um, I realized it was the chance in a lifetime. Right. Um, And where I was very lucky with Bob was, you know, he had this kind of mixed feeling about scripts, but he was a very clever man. And he knew that in this, for this movie, he didn't know anything about these people at all. They were not his clan on any level. <laughs> he didn't even know very many of them. Right, right. And so he asked me to come on the set um, to make sure he didn't make mistakes by accident. He didn't mind making a mistake on purpose if it was explained to him and he decided to do it anyway. Right. But what he didn't want to find is that he, when he'd cut together the scenes, it was full of yeah, errors.
0: Screwed up at that point.
2: And of course, In a way that empowered me to protect the script in a way that some of his other writers were not able to. Um, Although he worked with writers much more than the popular uh, legend, (laughs) where they think
0: it's all improvised and the whole thing. Yeah,
2: I mean, um, I would say it's not. You know, that's not the whole truth. Right. Um, But uh, it was quite hard because when you're on the set to prevent a mistake it means that all you ever do is say no Mm -hmm. because if everything's going swimmingly you don't say anything right right. you don't keep saying very good idea for a shot bob (laughs) you know you just shut up right and then you have to say no she wouldn't be in the dining room she isn't lady smith she's lady mary they wouldn't be eating this they wouldn't be wearing gloves bob he'd take his hat off bob they wouldn't have a napkin bob well that stuff wears a little thin right. <laughs> when you're getting up at four in the morning to direct a movie. Right, right. And so I can't pretend it was all plain sailing. <laughs> but it seems though
0: that the real legacy of that, which you couldn't have known at the time, but there's a few. First of all, you've now been exposed on the other side of the camera to the making of, of, of a major project like that. Secondly, Dame Maggie Smith. Uh, and then additionally, what ended up happening where at 52 years old for your first produced screenplay you win an Oscar all of this in a very real sense must have paved the way for the eventual return to this subject matter in Downton a few years later right? Oh
2: absolutely and also I mean I want to bang on a bit more about Bob Altman because this was a relationship that I owe everything to not many people can say that normally if they are what's called successful there are many different moments and tributaries but for me it was bob altman who opened the iron door he wouldn't let the studio started to panic at one point about the film they didn't really understand the script and that moment when we had the servants taking their employers names below stairs and which was all perfectly true but i remember they rang up they said Bob, this script's already got more characters than the Second World War, and now they've all got the same name. And they wanted to replace me, uh, in the immortal Hollywood phrase, for a polish, mm-hmm. which you and I know means a rewrite. Right, right, right. And he wouldn't let them. And he refused point blank. Now, normally, the director comes to you and says, Julian, if it was up to me, you know, let's meet for a drink. <laughs> and that's the end. And he, point blank, refused. Right. And they hummed and hawed and they argued. And, it, and, you know, it wasn't a huge film, but it was quite a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And they'd never heard of me. I'd never had a film produced. And he just said no. So although in some ways we were engaged in a kind of 10-week wrestling match behind the camera. <laughs> I also owe him everything. Right. And that was entirely the reason why I was alone on the stage and almost certainly on the stage at all uh, in L.A. Yeah. Because he, the point about Bob was he, he kind of got it. He understood the point of the script and he understood all, all the little gags and all that stuff. Yep. And uh, some people were slow to come to it. Well, he understood
0: it because you tailored it to, to him. him.
2: So that was. Yeah. Uh, but
0: now connecting it to Downton, I just have to ask, who the, another thread that connects it, I think is this person who people may not know, Gareth Neame, who, I guess initially raised the idea for Downton with you. And you initially resisted it, from what I've read.
2: Yes, I mean, all that is true. I mean, I'd had, Gos- Gosford had happened some years before, and I'd had a certain amount of luck, you know. I had some bestsellers, and Mary Poppins, yes, and various things, sure. and Victoria, and all that. And he and mm-hmm. I were trying to set up something completely different at the BBC, in fact. Neem. Uh, Gareth Neem yeah. and I, and, um, It nearly went and then it was going then it wasn't going and then we thought we got it away and then we hadn't and And we were having dinner to sort of mark the end of it because you know a very important gift certainly in show business as in romance is to know when something's not going to (laughs) fly and not waste too much more time on it and um we were talking and then he out of nowhere, in the middle of dinner, he said, would you ever consider going back into Gosford Park territory for television? And the reason I was a bit resistant at the beginning, I, it, it felt a bit greedy. It was like going back to my early hit and sort of shaking it to try and make it <laughs> deliver some more plums, you know. Right. And and I was, I don't know, I sort of thought about it, though. But then I was reading this book um, called To Marry an English Lord about the American girls, the so-called buccaneers, many of whom came over in the 1880s and 90s and with their lovely dollars that the English families were in such need of, and they married into the upper class. I mean, quite a lot of them, about 350, 400 of them married into different layers of the, of the British aristocracy. And as I was reading it, I thought the thing is we know all about those lovely young girls running down the gangplank into the arms of the Duke of Roxburgh the Duke of whatever. (laughs) Um, But what was it like for them afterwards? Because many of them outlived the way of life they had been sent over to save. Um, All they had done was delay the fall. (laughs) And how was it? And I've always been interested by people who... Can live in a foreign country who emigrate and live in a foreign country and maybe marry a national of that country and have children who are essentially foreign to them mm-hmm. and uh, you know the English woman with American children the German woman with French children whatever it is how does that work how do you sort of support yourself protect yourself when you are essentially an alien within your own family um, it's always fascinated me and I started to think about having a character who was one of these American girls, but 25 years later when they've got grown-up children, but their children are English and are not sharing their prejudices and their beliefs and their original education. I mean, the education of American girls in the 1860s and 70s was very much advanced on what was going on in Western Europe and that was one of the reasons they were such a success when they came to London and Paris and Rome is that they spoke about things. They had opinions. They talked about politics. They got into all sorts of stuff at the dinner table. These girls of 19 when the English girls were just sort of sitting there, staring at their fan, waiting for someone to ask them to dance. And, and I thought it was fun to do that. So in a way I had really imagined Cora Grantham and you know, once you start to imagine characters, you, you've begun, really. I mean, you've accepted the job even though you don't know it. And in this case, this is the first time
0: that you're creating your own characters for a TV uh, purpose. And PBS initially, uh, from what I've read past, you, I guess because, not because they didn't like the idea, but because I think they felt they had upstairs, downstairs, they, this might be too much of that sort of thing.
2: This is a... Masterpiece? A, this is, a, a, I think, a newspaper um, invention. It's not because true. okay. Because I've read in the papers yeah. that the BBC turned it okay, down. Okay, okay, okay. And then we went to ITV. But we didn't go to BBC. Okay, so it was always ITV. We, it was always ITV. And it was always Peter Fincham from the very beginning. He's left ITV now, but um, he was king then. Okay. And um, we had a sense, or I say we... Gareth had a sense that this was right for what Peter was looking for as a kind of flagship series and what was interesting was that given the kind of accepted truth at that time period drama was dead, the audience had gone, nobody cared uh, and everything had to be contemporary but Peter had a notion that the reason period drama was dead was nobody was making any and that if they made some people would watch it And he had this very strong hunch, and it's interesting because everyone told him he was wrong. And when he committed to Downton, I mean, it was very straightforward. We went. We had a pitch meeting. Um, The first episode was commissioned. We had another meeting. The whole thing was commissioned. It was made. That's how with the intention
0: initially of being just a one-off, one series, mini series. The category that it won at the Emmys, right?
2: Well, you. I mean, in British television, it's much safer than here. And so nothing, no first series is ever more than a single series (laughs) in case. And you have to construct it and indeed even write it, that if that's all there ever is, that's it. So it has to have closure, resolution. Because they never picked it up until halfway through transmission. They never picked it up before. Even when it's already a. Even when we had people shouting in the streets. Right. (laughs) Um, But we went to Peter, and he was, you know, I'm very thrilled that he was so rewarded for his faith because he went right out on a limb for us. And it was a great deal of money, of their budget, to, you know, promise to this one show. Um, But, you know, happily, it all came back buttered toast. But, uh, you know, I like people. when they're brave, you know, and when people give you a job with it's kind of all the insurance is there. Right, right. You you admire them less than when someone goes into battle for you and he went into battle.
0: Well, you now, just to, you know, connect it back to Gosford Park in a sense, I, I guess you must have enjoyed the, I, the way of writing, of having so many overlapping stories and many characters and all of that because you had, I think, 18 for the first series, 18 principal characters at least, and in terms of developing them and giving them personalities and knowing how they would think, I have read that you actually drew upon relationships that you had with people as as a child who most kids would have not ever really conversed with all that much or had the curiosity to pick their brain, but you basically knew the equivalent of the Maggie Smith character and people like that and, and were able to recall some of the things that they told you, right?
2: Well, I was very fortunate that I got interested in all this stuff when I was young, when I was a child. Because when I was a child, I still had a lot of great aunts alive and cousins who were like great aunts and so on. And I would talk to them about their lives when they were girls, when they were young, married women and so on. All of which, I mean, my eldest great-aunt, Izzy, who was my grandfather's elder sister, um, was born in 1880, which makes her 10 years older than Mary Crawley. (laughs) And I knew her really well. She only died when I was 21. Right, right. And so I would talk about where their houses had been and where they'd lived in London and where they'd lived in the country and blah, 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 blah. My brothers were not interested, you know, in any of that stuff. By the time they did get interested in their 40s, everyone was dead. Mm-hmm. And so I do consider myself very fortunate. And I would learn about family history and family things. And what was this? And who is he? And who is she? And all that. And so I did bring a lot of that. But I think it was Evelyn Waugh who said writers don't make much up. <laughs> and, and in the end, you're like a squirrel. You know, you have all this stuff in your pouch and you bring it out gradually as you as you write and situate i mean it's never as simple to say oh that character is my great aunt that character is a neighbor we live near in sussex because you're taking incidents situations particular relationships sometimes you change their sex sometimes you change their age whatever it is um so they're not portraits in that way but they are the starting point
0: why do you think this show which is basically uh absent of any sex and violence and the things that everybody thinks draw people to movies and other things today, why would it go over so well with so many people uh, all over the world, different parts of the world, and when along the line, aside from the ratings, did you realize that it had really clicked? I mean, if people recall, there were loving spoofs from George Clooney and LeBron James and all over the place. Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. So... Why did it click and when did you realize that this was not your, even your usual hit? This was a, a different sort of thing.
2: Um, we had an early sign because normally, uh, in Britain at any rate, I don't know if it's true here, but I suspect it is, when they've got a new series, they have a big pump of PR and there are posters and trailers and yada da, 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 and lots of people sitting on the breakfast sofa <laughs> on TV and so on. And that means you get a good figure for the first episode. You then lose the people who don't really like it. And it's not their thing. And you go down. <laughs> and then in the third week, you start to get the people who hear about it and they would like it. And if it's a hit, it goes on up. And then you have a hit. And we went up two and a half million in the second week. <laughs> and that, they thought there'd been a mistake in the counting because that absolutely never happens. And I remember about four weeks in, I was reading the times and there was i opened the times there was this big picture of the three girls and i thought what's this what's the story and over it it said um george osborne who's the chancellor you know george osborne belongs in the cast of downton abbey and it was an attack on the chancellor for some policy or other and i realized then that we were getting into the zeitgeist we were getting into what they call the the national conversation and we were, soon we were an adjective, you know, very Downton Abbey and all that sort of thing. And we started having characters in other shows talking about it. And eventually, of course, we had in Transformers, you know, the guards watching Downton Abbey during one sequence and all that. And in those moments, you do realise you become part of the common culture, that you are a reference point. Even for people who don't particularly watch it, they know from the title what what's you signifying by using the title right. and i liked all that i thought it was very flattering and enjoyable and uh, and it was fun to be at the center of a kind of phenomenon i think for the actors too i think they all enjoyed it sure um i mean by the end they were ready to move on particularly the young ones right right because you know you're told by every fan magazine that you're a star but are you right they want to you've you got to go out and find waters. out right. you know and and test your wings and everything and I don't object to that I good luck to them all right. I hope they all have terrific careers
0: now one of the absolutely amazing things about this most TV series that have any length of a run have writers rooms where there's many many people that are weighing in and contributing and all that on Downton Abbey the writers room was, was your office basically <laughs> meaning you and I believe you wrote every single episode of the six seasons uh, and that itself is amazing but I just want to if we can just quickly ask a few logistical questions about how that works. First of all, uh, how far ahead of what was on the air would you have written?
2: Well, what I tried to do each year, because I did, by the end of six years of it, fall into a kind of rhythm. Yeah. I would start writing in about September. First of all, we had meeting. You know, we'd, I'd meet Gareth and uh, Liz Truebridge, who was the, our other producer, and the three of us, I would describe what I thought were the main storylines they would comment they would make suggestions whatever then Gareth and I would go to ITV and we would talk I remember once we had to take out a storyline because almost exactly the same thing was happening on mr. Selfridge (laughs) Um, and that kind of thing right then I would start writing and I would start in September and by February which was the read-through I would have four or five four ready to shoot five probably one draft off ready to shoot maybe a bit more then from then on i'm writing against the filming schedule and so at the beginning it's fine because they were done in blocks of two the guys doing one and two they're prepping three and four i'm writing six and seven Mm -hmm. you know but of course by the end the filming starts to catch up with you and by the time I'm doing the two hour Christmas special uh, at the end of the filming, right. I'm getting the. We've got to know the new location. We've got to know the costumes. got to know which new character. You know, the casting's got to know. Right. And by then it was pretty frenetic every
0: now, year. Would you, even if it hasn't been written, would you know at the outset of the season roughly an outline of where it's going?
2: Yes. You knew where the principal characters. We're going to end up. I wouldn't say it never changed. Sometimes it did change. But as a general rule, those were adhered to. The smaller plots were I'd make up as I was going on sure. along. But, but the main direction, you know, was Mary going to be here or there? I mean, the one big adjustment in the whole job, actually, was when um, Dan Stevens, wanted to leave. The thing was that Jessica Brown Findlay, who played Sybil, had said right from the beginning she was doing the three years, because in England you can only get actors for a maximum of three mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. They will then only review for a ma- renew for a maximum of two years. So it's not like here, where you can get five years right. at the beginning. And we got to the end of three years, and um, Jessica was leaving, and Siobhan was leaving, who played O'Brien. Well, a servant was no problem, because they got another job. Right. The family was a problem if they were never going to be seen again. <laughs> right. Um because that meant the Grim Reaper. Right. But uh Jessica had announced this and I researched and I found out about Eclampsia which was still a big killer in the twenties. Mm-hmm. They didn't come up with a you had once you'd started to fit, you had no chance of survival at all mm-hmm. until the nineteen thirties. Mm-hmm. So I don't think most people know that. No. And um It got a lot of attention for the eclampsia society, which is great. It's still a very serious condition. People think it's gone. It hasn't gone. So all of that fitted. And for me, dramatically, it had this incredible bonus that it was very common for the woman to start fitting, have the baby, and then there would be a period of calm when it seemed that she was going to be okay. And that might last for an hour, two hours, three hours, and then the fits would start again, and then she would die. And that gave me a happy ending, followed by a sad ending, which, of course, was great. Right, and now, right. I don't want to sound heartless. No, but, uh, hey, you've got to write an episode. <laughs> you've episodes. got to write an episode here. <laughs> so that was all fine, and it was written and cast, and we were very thrilled, and Tim Pickett Smith was coming to do the, the bad doctor as opposed to the good local doctor. Mm-hmm. Everything was great. And then we got to the read-through, and... Dan decided he wanted to leave too, and he was in completely within his rights. I I say that immediately, Um, he he had thought about it, he'd been offered a play on Broadway, he had a movie offer, Um, you know, all sorts of things had happened. And I, I was an actor for many years, and I know that an actor must follow their gut because there's nothing else to follow you know there are no rules there there are no likelihoods you can go backwards as easily as you can go forwards and you have to do what your heart is telling you so i didn't blame him at all but the problem was i now had to kill someone else because when (laughs) you're a young man you've just had a baby you're happily married you're heir to a great estate you're never seen again there's only one answer for this and if if I'd known before, I probably would have killed them both in a crash Right, or right, right, right. But I couldn't. And I i knew that we were going to have this long anguish after Sybil and Cora was going to blame Hugh and uh, Robert uh, Grantham and, and blah, 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 all this is going to go. And I thought, we can't do another memorials and funerals and da-da-da. And the only way I could get out of all that, was to kill him in the last shot of the series <laughs> and then have a six-month time jump right, before we start right. again. So then all that's done. Right. And then Mary is, instead of spending the whole series in tears, right. is in the process of rebuilding her life, which was much more interesting Work for Michelle out. anyway. Right. So all of that was great. That was the solution. It's going to be great. Great, except that you, like with
0: the rape of Anna, heard plenty from people about... Uh, these terrible things that
2: have befallen these characters who everybody loved well even worse in great britain <laughs> the last episode is shown on christmas okay oh, so they were sitting there on christmas night <laughs> eating that one mince pie too many right. and suddenly boff, their favorite character is
0: dead you you whack them so
2: <laughs> the letters i got you know from all of that was just absolutely unbelievable but i mean nevertheless it had to be the anna the anna story um was a different thing um i had long had an ambition to have a rape story where there was no blame at all attached to the character who was attacked Uh, because when i was young i mean it's a long time ago now but when i was young There was always a slight sense of what did she think she was doing going out at that time of night? Why was she wearing that skirt? Why was she on her You know, know, all that stuff. right. right. To spread the blame. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Which was very unjust. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a story where there was no question that there was a spread of blame. And Anna had done nothing wrong. All she had been was friendly. She'd been polite and friendly. And that was her reward and of course it was shocking i mean i had a very interesting thing that one woman came up to me and said what i didn't understand was why you re-edited it between seeing it on sunday night and they used to re-show it on the following sunday afternoon in england and i said what do you mean we re-edited it and she said oh well you took out all the violent scenes of course, we hadn't re-edited. The violent scenes were in her head yeah, and not on the screen. We didn't actually. If you if you watch it, it, it it's all in your imagination right. where it's happening. But for Downton, we were interested not in the violent event. We you know, like watching Matthew in a car, car. We didn't see that. We no. just saw him afterwards, right. because we were interested in exploring the emotional knock-on effects of these events. Uh, so it was never a violent show to watch in, in, in ever. But that was very interesting, because I got a lot of letters, uh, some of which were very moving, actually, from women who had been attacked at some point in their life. Many of them had never confessed it, had kept it to themselves, but felt that if they had confessed it, there would have been some blame attached to them. And, I mean, I don't want to make claims for television, you know, I do understand that we're not curing cancer, but nevertheless, in those moments, you do feel you have perhaps done something slightly good. Sure. I was glad of that. No, it's great. And so when it comes
0: time, you I guess you, perhaps in consultation with others, uh, decided sixth season is going to be it. Got to wrap this up. What were the other, if any, serious finales that you consulted in terms of just seeing how they did it? And, and also, uh, did you always... in always know it was going to be a a pretty happy ending for most of the surviving characters at that point. Was that important to you that it be that way? Wrapping
2: it up was of course a big issue as you can imagine. I mean funny enough originally we intended to end it after five but when we got to five there seemed to be too much material to do uh, and we wanted to have a whole series that was essentially a wrap-up series. So we could tie up the story or whatever. We didn't all have to be in the last episode. Mm. Um, so having made that decision, um, we then moved into this series of wrap-ups. Um, I have watched, you know, quite a few final episodes. And um, I sometimes I think they get it better than other times. I thought um, the very end of West Wing was very good. Yeah. Um, one or two other series I've loved. Where I feel there is a difference in the last episode, and with Downton, because we always had this I don't know how it was down here, but we always had this two hour episode at the end of the series in Britain. So you have a long movie length yeah. episode to, to do it. Um, was I feel up to the last episode there's always a side of you that is writing to attract other viewers to bring more people on board you're trying to make the episode enjoyable for people who've never seen another episode of Downton Abbey they're in a hotel in Wichita they turn on the television (laughs) oh this is that Downton Abbey they're all talking about and so you always try to give it a slightly broader base and some stories contained within the episode so a newcomer can enjoy enjoy it but I didn't feel that about the last episode. I thought, no, this last episode is for our faithful viewers, who have followed us for some part of six years or all of it, mm-hmm. and they are now entitled to have a show that is for them. Right. And I felt that most of our viewers wanted reasonably happy endings for most of these characters. Yeah. <laughs> because you've gone uphill and down Dale with them, you've you know people have died people have been attacked terrible romances have gone wrong one guy was even murdered right. you know you've lived through this milestone of human horror right. and you just want these characters you have loved taken to a safe place <laughs> where they can live their lives right. <laughs> and I didn't fight that right. um obviously I wanted a happy ending for Edith and um a certain glee in me wanted her to outrank Mary at the end so that she would be the (laughs) senior great lady (laughs) in an even larger house. That rather appealed to me after all that Edith has been through. But, I, I mean, I freely acknowledge that, of course, you get fond of these characters. You know, you build them up, you live with them for years. And I didn't want them condemned to a perpetual malaise <laughs> in wherever that murky place right. is that TV characters go to when you can't see them anymore Sure,
0: with with our very short remaining time I just have three very brief things if I may uh, First of all, have we seen the last of, of the Downton characters I know that I believe ITV and NBC asked you to they were hoping you would go longer uh, and why not it's been so great for for them as well but that that wasn't going to happen but you are open to a movie version
2: oh no I'm completely open to a movie version and and I've even thought about a movie version because I don't want to be caught unaware they say right right. go (laughs) Um, so you've thought but I mean I don't make the final decision of production you know I'm I've said I'm willing, but that's as much as I can do.
0: Additionally, whereas I think a lot of people would take a year or two vacation after wrapping up such a uh, marathon of a project, you have, if I can just list, uh, followed the previous Broadway uh, venture of Mary Poppins with School of Rock. We were at the Tonys last night. You were nominated for, uh, for that and, and for a terrific show uh, that you did with Andrew Lloyd Webber doing the music. You did the book. This is not the most obvious, as you said, <laughs> uh, but that was one thing. Belgravia, which is essentially taking a another look at, at class divisions using an older form of storytelling, the serialized novel, with the most modern way of releasing things, the app. Uh, Dr. Thorne, since May, has been on Amazon, a four-part miniseries that, again, looks at a different angle of uh, class class divisions
2: and comes back to Anthony Trollope, who you mentioned earlier. Well, it's really, I love Trollope. I'm a big yep. fan of Trollope. And I, and I find his morality, his philosophy, uh, very close to my own. I don't put myself in his category. But, uh, you know, I really appreciate his work. And I right. would like to see more of it on television instead of it always being Jane Austen. I mean, right. I love <laughs> Jane Austen, too. You know, I love Dickens. Right. But rather than Spread always doing the same yeah, books.
0: right. So that's one, and then now, uh, I know they announced it a little earlier than you might have liked because it's put some pressure on you, but there's the NBC uh, drama series of the Gilded Age, which we have to look forward to. So I guess the question is, you know, you could have been on a beach in, in Hawaii or something. Instead, you went full speed ahead, uh, you, and you have now a lot to show for that post-Downton already. Uh, how does that feel?
2: Well... You know, when you've been an actor, it's very difficult to say no, (laughs) because you spend so long waiting for someone to invite you to do almost anything. Right. Um, And I think I'm not good at saying no. I think I'm getting better. But I mean, I don't look down on the week on the beach. I hope I get a week on the beach (laughs) at some point. At the moment, I'm trying to clear my desk of different things I've said yes to so that I can go clean into Gilded Age. And I'm not trying to do seven things at once. You know, that can be quite draining when you've got all these balls in the air and you're trying to do different drafts of this and that and the other. Um, I love the idea of Gilded Age. And in fact, part of this weekend, I've been over for the Tonys, I've spent walking around uh, the Upper East Side seeing what remains of the Gilded Age houses. A great many of them were demolished. There were particularly the ones on Fifth Avenue. But if you just take a step or two back from Fifth Avenue, lots of them survive. And, and the bigger ones are all parts of institutions or cultural centers or embassies or consulates. Or whatever, but they're still there. And so I've been sort of bathing in the world of the Gilded Age sure. uh, as a kind of taster. Now, society today
0: uh, versus the even just not not so long ago, the, the grandmother that you uh, mentioned having a relationship with or not, uh, you know, people that within your memory, they live very differently today. We have virtually no rules in society that any, At least that anyone adheres to On a regular basis uh, And I wonder if you Regardless, since you're somebody Who's really thought about class uh, More than most of us Just in the course of exploring it In so many different ways Is it a good thing or a bad thing That it's changed in the way that it has Is society uh, Today, without these rules uh, A better place than it was When, when they existed
2: well, better and worse, I'm not sure how meaningful those right, words right, are. Right. I mean, society evolves, you know, and it keeps changing and reinventing itself. And society always likes to present itself as having timeless values. But in fact, it doesn't have very many timeless values. It's, everything is changing all the time. I, I think for the modern psyche, um, a very important element is social mobility. And one of the areas where our society is falling down i make no judgment of america is that our social mobility has rather dried up and it we are less socially mobile than we were half a century ago which i think is a fairly serious indictment um it's partly our schooling it's partly the enormous amounts of money that have suddenly arrived uh the upper part of society but you're really getting a kind of two world thing again and um, I don't think that's very helpful. I mean, I love people to make money and have lovely houses and have lovely lives, but the only way that is acceptable is if to some level or other that is accessible. Right. And um, at the moment, I don't think it's accessible enough, even to men and women coming out of a working class background who are brilliant, brilliantly talented, brilliantly clever, just to get the tools to make their potential flower to make things happen is very difficult for them at the moment obviously some people manage it but I would rather more managed it and I would rather we made it easier for them to manage it and we had better ladders in place apart from that the only thing I do think we haven't got quite right is I don't think we are happier when we have no rules of behavior I don't think actually this has anything to do with class i'm not talking about whether you know how to eat lobster or address a dress at duchess <laughs> i'm talking about a sort of manner towards each other customs that are observed at every level a sort of politeness i mean dress dress at the moment seems to me to have gone completely off piste and sometimes wandering around at an event like last night where we both were you you look at people and you think I wonder if you quite know the effect that your outfit has uh, in in the, in the glare of day. Right, right. You know, um, I just sometimes I'm nostalgic for slightly more order. Right. I don't think it's to do with people being better or worse than right. anyone else. It's just kind of it's like you know casual chic. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, if it says. Shorts. Right. If it says black tie, we know what that means. Right. This is
0: open to interpretation. So much
2: of it is just, and then right. you know, all it means really is that your wife's on the telephone for two hours trying to find out what everyone else is going to wear.
0: <laughs> well, the very last thing is this. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you were, you were born into a certain class, as we acknowledged, a certain way of life, and maybe you didn't have to drive yourself as hard as you have. And certainly at and continue to drive yourself uh, you work very hard you've produced an amazing amount of, of of great content and I just wonder for you if you were to almost psychoanalyze yourself is part of this coming back to class about showing that uh, you are as that, that 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 is not some you're not somebody that wants to Rest on your laurel or your or, or the equivalent of a title or whatever, but it's important to you to show that class alone would not be uh, is not something to uh, that you are comfortable hanging your hat on, but that you would rather uh, show that look you're you've earned the you've earned your place in the world and you've you know you've through through hard work that like anyone else. Funnily
2: enough, I don't think that was true of me. I think my, I am very driven, too driven. And if I look, you know that thing when they say, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would say, calm down. (laughs) But so I I, I am, I acknowledge a workaholic and all of those things, but it comes from something different. When I was young, I had three elder brothers. The the older two were so much older. My eldest brother was 12 years old. I was 8. he was 20. So we were living completely different lives. But my next brother up was very, very, very good looking. He looked like, do you remember an actor called Terence Stamp? Of course. He was very like Terence Stamp. And he was asked to model in magazines and record records and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I was as plain as a pike stuff <laughs> and I had none of that. They, nobody wanted to dance with me. Right. You know, uh, I remember when I was young, I overheard a conversation between two girls, one girl saying to the other, I haven't got enough boys for my party. And the other one saying, why don't you ask the fellows brothers? And she said, yeah, well, I would, but to get the good looking one, you have to have the dull, ugly one. So that was my motivator because I knew I might be ugly, but I wasn't dull. And, I, this wasn't coming across right. clearly but I had to get it across right. that I was the interesting one and they couldn't see it my mother could see it. I mean I, she loved us both but right. my mother could see it right. but I couldn't make other people see it and that was the start of it much more than any class I was very interested by yeah. I observed and everything but it wasn't in my gut right. being passed over when I was the interesting one, that was in my gut. <laughs> and that, I think, was the beginning of the fire.
0: Well, this has been anything but dull, so I thank you very much and, and really appreciate your time. And I've loved everything you've done that I've seen, and I look forward to seeing a lot more, so thank oh, you very much. very kind of you. Thank, you.
2: thank you.
1: And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the Best Seller's Body Care Set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at oceamalibu.com code SUMMER.